do you want to learn? You know, what skill set do you want to leave with? And I think just open more, increasingly more, man, curriculum needs to be a little bit more personalized. You know what I mean? I think every student who goes to a four-year institution should have some grand project that they work on. So now they are hitting the job market as an expert in something. of experience in higher education in both leadership and in the classroom. He is the uh, George Littleton Professor of American History. He's had an, an illustrious career uh, working both as the Vice President of uh, Community and um, Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas, as well as other leadership positions at uh, previous universities, including uh, LSU, Louisiana State University. Uh, he is an acclaimed professor uh, teaching some of uh, UT's most popular courses and also receiving recognition awards for it. I mean, look, this guy has an award of being the top 10 professors in the state of Texas, and he's received uh, teaching excellence awards uh, at UT. And he's a sought off speaker. He's a sought off speaker on both student achievement and college athletics. And he consults with large companies and foundations uh, and brands. So he brings a wealth of knowledge to this conversation today. Dr. Moore, welcome to Leadership Disrupted. Brother Masur, thank you for having me, man. You got it. So, you know, I, I read your bio and one of the things that I, I find interesting is how do you pull off being both a highly sought after professor, popular professor, and a pretty well-respected uh, leader and administrator at a, at a major university. It seems like those two things usually don't go together. Uh, how are you able to pull those things off? Well, let me say this, man. You know, uh, somebody tried to, uh, when I got in the VP role in 2017, I was in there 2017 to 20, early 2021, um, I told somebody, you know, yeah, I like being the VP role. I said, but remember, I'm a professor first and a vice president second. And I think some people got offended by that. They felt that I wasn't going to take the job seriously. I said, no, my core identity is as, as a professor. And even in the VP role, I still taught a thousand students every fall semester. And my, here is why. Man, when I'm standing in front of 500 students on Monday and Wednesday and another 500 on Tuesday and Thursday, I have my pulse, A, on the student body. I also have my pulse on the needs of that generation. And as a, you know, someone who will be 50 um, on, uh, in a couple of days, it also helped me uh, understand where things were going. And I think all too often, even, even in the academy, in the corporate space, you name the industry, you often have older people like myself who are tucked away in C-suite offices and they don't have the pulse of the organization and they don't know where things are going. And so I told people, my, I said, when I'm teaching those 1,000 students, I have 1,000 consultants. And I didn't launch a single initiative without asking them first. And I, I'm going to give you something very basic. I remember we, were, we had launched some initiative and it had very little student participation. All right, I forgot what it was. And I asked the students, I said, you know, you know we launched this initiative and I said, it meets every Thursday in this building. And I said, any idea why people aren't coming? 
They said, yeah, Dr. Moore, that's too far. We, not, we don't walk that far across campus. And so <laughs> it's simple stuff. You, you know what I'm saying? But if you don't have the pulse of the people, then, then you'll be making a lot of mistakes. So th- those were a thousand mentors. I believe in reverse mentoring. And those 1,000 students, I think, helped me, gave me a tremendous window into what a university administrator needed to do. Wow. So also, you know, you're no shrinking violet. Um, You have an opinion Mm -hmm. and you're able to voice that opinion openly. Um, It's it's very rare that you have someone who's a in a leadership position, especially at a uh, top university who is also a fervent student uh, advocate for both uh, the underserved and also uh, 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 college athletes. How are you able to uh, bring those two together without uh, without being sent to Siberia, you know, by, you know, by the, uh, you know, by the top administrators? I think, I think they've tried to a couple of times. Um, but, but, but to me, man, you know, I'm always going to speak, speak truth to power. I'm never going to lie. And, you know, I've taught, you know, in the deep South for 20, what, 23, 24 years. And one thing I notice about white Southerners, they appreciate when you just tell them the truth and are, be, and are straight up. They, they, there, is a, there is a respect there. You know what I'm saying? They may not like it. They may disagree with the politics, but they respect the opinion and they respect the perspective. And so for me, man, I've, I've, you know, I told you I've been the same way since I became a professor. You know, my, when I got my PhD in 1998, uh, my first job offer came uh, 1997 from Clark Atlanta University. They were offering me $32,000 a year, right? And my first job at LSU paid 40 grand. And that was like a big deal for a history professor. Right. So I didn't get in this to make money or to get rich, man. I got in this to motivate students like myself. And you know, man, I finished high school with a 1.6 GPA and a 15 on the ACT. I wasn't dumb. I wasn't ignorant. I wasn't stupid. I just wasn't engaged in the process of learning. And I've just tried to, I've just tried to motivate those, that kind of student over the last 24 years. But let's let's stay here for a moment because I, you know, I actually believe that this is um, an area that is often misunderstood when it comes to uh, students who um, that come from our communities that often underperform on tests. And sometimes I, you know, my perspective is that it appears to be that we just do not take uh, the studying seriously early or not having access to uh, the resources to do preparation for those tests. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you kind of articulate the reasons for uh, sometimes low test scores, but at the same time being able to turn out uh, to have an illustrious career like yourself and highly respected uh, academically as, as a scholar? I think the number one reason is, number one, we know the tests are stupid. You know, I, I tell people all the time, so the SAT, the max is 1600. And I'm like, what's the difference between a 1500 and a 1560? It may be one or two questions. And so it, it's stupid. And so I think, you know, we know it's stupid. And, you know, research has revealed that the university I teach at, the University of Texas, they didn't start requiring standardized tests until the fall of 1956. Ironically, that was the year they integrated. <laughs> and so a lot of this thing around standardized testing, Ahmad, is nothing more than gatekeeping mechanism. In the case of Texas, it was a gatekeeping to keep black folks out. And I think of some other professional fields, it's, it's a gatekeeping mechanism to keep working class and poor people out. You know, so I think number one, the tests are stupid. Number two, we understand the history of the test. 
And, and number three, we, we understand this idea of, you know, black people are always having their intelligence questioned. And so now you want me to take a four hour test that, you know, that where you're going to gauge my intelligence off of, it just never made any sense to me. The, the test never made any sense to me. And luckily now we see what they're doing in the UC system. These schools now are going test optional, having a, a broader diversity of, you know, applications. And they're realizing that they should have went test optional a long time. But a lot of us have been saying that the best indicator of performance in college is not a test score. It is the high school transcript. You know, it's interesting because um, I think sometimes we forget that testing is a metric uh, designed uh, to sort mm, people. Come on, man. Yeah. And, and, and that sorting um, is not necessarily set up to uh, bring the best talent or to bring a diverse range of talent onto mm. the campus. So a lot of times when you're using these test scores, those test scores are aligned with how university professors want to teach, mm-hmm. uh, how they want to kind of develop uh, metrics and outcomes at the university system. And so uh, I, I'm glad actually to hear what you're saying, because we're, we're at a time right now where, you know, looking at a broad range of options for how to evaluate uh, skills and talent Absolutely. and someone's capacity is uh, is critical. So, so speaking of that, I mean, you know, you've been in, you've been a vice president of uh, diversity and community engagement, mm-hmm. and uh, that department, by the way, was not a small department. No, not at all. It was not at all. Not at all. Three hundred employees. Um, you yeah. had Title IX, which could be a handful in itself. <laughs> you had community yeah. initiatives. Um, you had first year students, et cetera. But one of the things that I I learned about your department and your leadership style is that you didn't uh, follow what I consider to be kind of the typical uh, deficit model around uh, diversity. And, right. and, and this is my term, deficit model, meaning that um, it's diversity based on kind of grievance. Uh, you know, what, what I saw from your department and what I often see in, your, in the programs that you created, that they were very innovative, very uh, pro-centric in terms of students, um, not really, it's, it wasn't about diversity more than it was about them having the opportunity right. to be connected to opportunities. Can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, your, you know, your leadership approach and philosophy yeah. uh, towards this topic? And thank you, Mike, because I, I was criticized by some state politicians they told me I had a very conservative approach, but here, and they wanted, they felt that I should be, that it was my job to create political activists. I said, there's a time and place for that, but these parents have sent these kids to school to get a degree. And we want to get, we want them to leave here marketable so they can go make some money. And, and too often in the diversity conversation, Ahmad, is centered around social justice. And I tell people that social justice is a, it's a relative term, you know, you may think a woman's right to choose is social justice. Somebody may say, no, you know, uh, the unborn, it, they, they may say, no, we, we don't want, we don't, we, we're against abortion because we believe the unborn has rights. So, you know, so social justice is a very relative term. And so what I realized, man, and, 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 and let me say this, be clear about this. Leonard Moore as vice president of diversity could not stop all the racism at the University of Texas. Couldn't do it. That school has been there for 150 years. So I can't, I can't, I can't, 
I can't twist people's arms. You know what I'm saying? I think you can try to coach and you can try to mentor, expose people to training, but I couldn't, I can't, I can't wait on this specific dean to change his or her mind about an initiative. So what we did, Amad, it's like, okay, how can we build in many ways? How can we build a suite of programs where these black and brown kids not get as much opportunity as the, as the, as the majority kids, but get more opportunities? And so that was, we, we did. So you're right, man. It wasn't a deficit model. It wasn't like, oh, you need some more tutoring. No, and you know, the big thing I did, man, it was just exposure. Launched a Wall Street trip for these kids, you know, study abroad programs in Beijing and in Cape Town and in Dubai. And here's what we found, Ahmad, because I, you know, I, I tell, I used to wake up at three in the morning asking God, how can I give these kids a competitive advantage? Yes. And I hate the term, I hate the term equity, by the way, because if I've been a hundred yards behind you, if, if you know, if you got me chained to a fence and you running around the track, right? Just because you unchained me, you still have a head start. <laughs> I'll never catch you. And so, and so what we did, it was like, man, what can we do to give these kids a, a competitive advantage? So we launched these global programs, these global internship programs. They go to China for a month. They teach English at a, at, a, at a migrant middle school. Then they go to Cape Town for a month and they have an internship in their specific major. And you go to Dubai eight or nine days. What we have found when we've taken those black and brown kids abroad, Amat, those kids function abroad better than any of the majority kids. You know why? Because that kid from inner city Dallas or that kid from the U.S.-Mexico border has been adjusting their whole life. And so they're like, well, I'm in Dubai. I'm in Beijing. I'm in Cape Town. I'm going to kill the game. And so that's the way we approached it. And, you know, we launched an a, a inclusive innovation platform. And so, like you said, man, it was very much cutting edge. And here's what I tell people who criticize that approach. If you want somebody to sit up and talk about Trump or talk about the white man all day or to talk about institutional racism all day, you can find that person on campus. I'm not that guy. <laughs> Is institutional racism a fact of life? Absolutely. At, put a period there, but we can't solve it. So what I got to do is motivate these young people to go do something dynamic and they can rise above. That's great. Cause I, you know, so often when we think of, you know, programs, we're really looking at this ideal of closing the gap, mm. you know, closing right. the disparity <laughs> gap. And that gets us kind of caught up in this uh, cycle that, you know, um, would never really deliver you where you think you want to go. That's right. And what I find with your programs is, and, and really in the work uh, that I do around working with other innovators is that when you're looking at innovation, I mean, you're really kind of disrupting the cycle and you're looking mm. at different approaches that, that, that are not necessarily meant to be aligned with Come on. Um, trying to go down the disparity route. Like you want right. to be something else that's better. That's right. <laughs> you no, know, and that's one of the things I've taken from your from your programs. Can you can you speak a little bit about a few of those programs? Because yeah, I think yeah. um, that yeah. one of the areas, and, I, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but I find that your students kind of get this combination of both um, an experience around entrepreneurism, mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, global connections and global interactions. Yeah. And um, being, in, you know, being teachers as well as being students. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the um, your global program and also the 
um, inclusive innovation program. And so I'll say this, man. So 2012, man, I got a email from the Obama administration. They, they, they had launched the 100,000 strong initiative and they, didn't, they wanted to get 100,000 U.S. students to go study in China over a certain period of time. Because what they found is that the disparity, if you look at the number of Chinese students who study here versus how many we were sending over there, oh, oh man, the ratio may have been like nine to one. It, it was crazy. So, you know, and I remember, man, when we applied for the grant, we got some money from the Coca-Cola Foundation. I remember my, that I didn't even know what the study abroad office was, but I knew that black kids weren't studying abroad. And, and the, 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 the office was physically located in the whitest part of campus. It was situated right off campus in the midst of all these white fraternity and sorority houses. You know, wow. and I had to go dig and find it. So, it, so the office of my was, was struck, and this is before, the, the study abroad office was structured so a white girl from suburban Houston could walk in and drop a check for $7,000 and go to Barcelona for six weeks. That's how it was all, that's how it was set up. And I remember when I said, hey, I got this money. I want to launch a study abroad program, fill out the paperwork. They told me, they said, well, Dr. Moore, you know, you have to get at least eight students in the program or we'll cancel it. I said, hell, I'll get 15 students walking to the water fountain. All right. And so the first time we went, <laughs> first time we went, we took about 45, 50 students. Eight, 90% of them were black and brown. Now, here's the funny part. Not only did we have to work with our campus partners about where's the scholarship money? You don't have any black kids studying abroad. That was one fight. The other fight was with, was with black and brown parents. Now understand them. They had never been abroad. You talking about taking my daughter or son to China. So man, I would be on the phone with parents like, hey, I got your daughter. And I'll send them a picture of me and my wife and my three kids. I'm taking my whole family and I wouldn't take your kid anywhere. I won't take my own family. And, and it, you know, and, and it was exciting, man. Oh, the day we would leave, I would have parents and grandparents come to the airport just to meet me. You know what I'm saying? But do you know what it was like, man, seeing those kids get a passport? I said, y'all are changing the trajectory of your family. So China was successful. And then a the year after that, we launched Cape Town. And so mm -hmm. the last time I went to Cape Town, we took 81 students. You know what I'm saying? And what is so dynamic is that when these kids come back, because you know, they have an internship over there. They take a class with me. But when these kids come back, man, their confidence level is off the chain. And here's what I tell them. When you go to that econ class in the fall or that psychology class or that history class, raise your hand and let them people know you've been all over the world. Say, Professor Mansoor, you know, that's interesting you're talking about mass transportation because it was, when I was in Cape Town, it looked like this. And when I was in Beijing, it looked like this. At that point, you flip the class and now, because you got all this global experience, you become the de facto leader of the class. And man, it just did something oh, for these kids. It. You know, it just did something for them. And so me, when we, when we decided what country we were going to use, I was very strategic. I didn't choose France. I didn't choose England, Spain. Anybody can go there. Not trying to minimize it. But I understood for this thing really to pop, we need to have some countries on there that most Americans didn't go to. And what we have found since then, Ahmad, is that when our kids go on these interviews and, and you know, we're strategic about how they put it on the resume, the first section of their resume of mine says global experience, all right? And you know, we try to tell them, come to Beijing after your freshman year, come to Cape Town after your sophomore year, and spring break your junior year, go to Dubai. So before they are a senior in college, the global experience section should be at the top of their resume. And here's how we, here's how we kill it. We tell them, put your China experience, type it in Mandarin, Put your South Africa experience on there in Zulu, Afrikaans, or Kosa. 
And the Dubai experience, you gonna put it in Arabic. And you're not even 20 years old. And what I tell parents is quit spending all that money on these expensive schools. We can get you to Dubai for $2,000 for eight days, Cape Town for five grand, and Beijing for five grand. That's $12,000. Wow. And these kids are killing it on the job market. I get excited, man, but you know, it's just, just me, man. But I, I get really excited about that stuff, yeah. Oh, well, that, well, that's, that's why I wanted to bring you on because I yeah. knew that you would light up uh, the screen yeah. here with, with the, the infectious energy that you bring to your right. work. And what um, I'm thinking about doing now, Ahmad, is since I'm not the VP role anymore, I'm thinking about cutting off all my programs with UT, launching that as a 10-week, as a, as a six- to eight-week program in the summer, you know what I'm saying, where we do... Dubai first, then we do Cape Town, and then we do China, where you can get it all in one summer for $12,000, man. I'm sorry, man. I get excited. I'm sorry, man. No, I I know you're doing it. And and I think, I mean, come on. We we really do need more infectious leaders like yourself in higher ed right now, Uh, which which kind of brings me to my next question. Um, Because, you know, as you know, higher ed has been under the uh, microscope for... Mm -hmm. Um, how they deliver or not deliver value in today's economy. Right. Um, right. You know, there's conversations about, you know, work preparation and skills. And then there's another conversation related to uh, the cost mm-hmm. uh, of going to these universities and what's the return on investment. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the steps that universities uh, need to take in order to start ameliorating uh, this challenge? I think the biggest challenge, man, is that most universities, there are two sides of it. You're going to have a, uh, an engineering and a more of a STEM side of the campus. But the majority of your students are going to be more on the humanities, social sciences side. That's what the majority of students. And so whenever these universities talk about innovation, it's only taking place typically in one corner of the campus. But you got all these other students in the humanities and social sciences. You know what I'm saying? Well, there is no innovation taking place. I remember telling my colleagues in the history department, I told them, as I said, you know what? We need to change our curriculum up. And and since we are in Austin, we need to do more history of tech, you know, history of innovation courses. They looked at me like I was crazy. And here's what I told them. I said, the only reason we are teaching as many students as we're teaching right now is because of the mandatory American history credit. What happens if that credit goes away? And so I just, I think when you have a model where professors are tenured, right, where it rewards laziness, it rewards people, you know, not being innovative, I think it's just difficult to change. But, you know, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm optimistic about and talking to you about some of these models across the globe, and the U.S. has to get out of this idea that it has the best higher ed system in the world. Now, we have the most access, the most access, but in terms of the best. And here's how you know it's not the best. Go talk to kids from Berkeley, Michigan, Texas, Wisconsin, Ohio State. You got some juniors just floating there. And they have no idea what they want to do, no idea what they're passionate about, because we have never asked them. We just tell them to come and you pick a major. And a lot of these kids are flat out bored. I I, I agree. Actually, you know, I've spoken to students that have gone to Berkeley and some of the so-called top 20 colleges. And one of the things you find that appears to be um, uh, across the board with these students is that. I mean, they stress out and spend a lot of their time mm-hmm. trying to um, meet, you know, meet up to the standard of their peers, right? Because that's right. the way the university is set up. It's set mm-hmm. up for you to be 
in competition with your peers. And when they fall short of that, it, it, it takes these students into states of depression. Absolutely. Uh, to, anxiety, to a degree. Yes. Anxiety right. and depression. And so they forget that their four years there is an opportunity right. to really engage on a, a, not only a journey of personal development, but a journey of talent development. That's right. That's right. That's right. Which occurs outside the classroom. I, here's what I tell students all the time. I said, if we're honest with ourselves, Google has all the content. <laughs> for any class you could imagine. I said, so a, a Psych 101 class at Berkeley is going to be the same as a Psych 101 class at Texas or Morehouse or Jackson. It's the same. I said, the challenge, I said, the thing about college is, it's what goes on outside the classroom. The people you meet, the student organizations you become a part of, and the experience you have. Here's how backwards we are, Ahmad. And whenever I tell this to students, they, they're like, Dr. Moore, you're right. I said, students would rather get an A in a class where they learn nothing than a C or B in a class where they learn a whole lot. That's how jacked up it is. And I don't know how we fix that, but it is jacked up. I mean, my, my, I have two kids in high school now, one in college. The whole class rank in high school thing is stupid. What's the purpose of it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, and you and I have had these conversations, how important it is for students to fail forward. You know, that, you know, they, they learn from failure. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But so often, right. <laughs> you know, their first 18, uh, their first 12 years in school, uh, mm-hmm. the F represents, you know, it, it's the worst that you could be. So the right. ideal of them learning how to fail forward to, to embracing that concept becomes very foreign and very scary, given the fact that they've been acculturated to see failure mm-hmm. as the absolute worst state to be in. Absolutely. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a very, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a paradox, and, it, and it's really creating challenges when it comes to um, how students really take advantage of the four-year experience. So I have, a, I have a question. I want I want to follow up with that question. Um, so one of your programs is the inclusive innovation, and was, one of the things right. that I was well, excuse me, sorry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, you, for for me, you will forever be connected to that because I think so highly yeah. of that program. Thank you, man. And it's so unusual. Uh, to be on a on a college campus, but can you speak to a little bit about that program? Yeah. Uh, what you had meant to get mm-hmm. from that program, and how that plays into bringing um, more of the experiential side of education into higher ed? Let me say this: so many of our people, man, are are just brilliant. You know, I, I like to tell this story. You know, when I was, I was running this middle school boys program in Baton Rouge and after Katrina, my, it was the worst middle school. Pro, worst, they said it was the worst middle school in the U.S., whatever that means. So anyway, man, you know, we start this program. We were going to bring like these the, the, the worst boys at the middle school up to LSU's campus every Saturday. Right. Put them on a 55 coach passenger bus and do like this college four day thing. We do it for, we, we do it for like 12 Saturdays in the fall, 12 Saturdays in the spring. So the first day, man, we launched a program. I go to the campus and my boy goes to the, to the middle school to meet the boys. And I'm like, man, I hope we got 10 guys. Man, we have 45 guys on the bus the first week. Now, this is seven in the morning on a Saturday. And these are kids flunking seventh and eighth grade. All right. So the story. So, man, so, you know, when these kids got to campus the first day, you had like these second and third graders. I'm like, man, who are these little kids? 
<laughs> and one of the brothers said, he said, well, 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 sir, my mama told me if I was going to come, I had to bring I had to bring them too." All right. So anyway, <laughs> we take we take these kids to Houston. All right. I'm in I'm on the bus with a third grader and a fourth grader. And I asked him, I said, man, can you put 22 inch rims on a C-class Benz? And these boys, third and fourth grade flunking math. The one dude says, fourth grader says, uh, third grader says, no, I don't think so, Mr. Moore. I said, why? He said, because the suspension of the car can't hold the rim. And if you turn the car, if you turn the corner, the car may tip over. You know what his, you know what his boy said? His boy said, well, you may be able to do it if you jack the suspension up in the car, in the back of the car, three inches. These boys in third and fourth grade. And so this is the brilliance. And so when we launched this inclusive innovation piece, those were the two guys I had in mind. The traditional stuff ain't gonna work with. Some of our kids, I got a daughter. She just gonna have a 2.5 GPA in high school and in college, but she's innovative and creative. And we gotta give people the space for that. What I've never understood at elite institutions it seemed like the most, it seemed like the programs that offer the most freedom where you could be innovative and creative, it, it was reserved for all the kids with 4.0 GPAs. And I never understood that. Absolutely. So, yeah. so my thing is that, no, these kids are brilliant because they, they've had to be creative their whole life. Let's give them a framework and a structure where they could spend two to three years of their college career, right, outside of their classwork, working on what you call it a moonshot project. So that when they finish undergrad, they have a body of work. They can show up to Google or Disney or Amazon and say, hey, you all are having ad, um, your ad revenue is down. I know how we can triple your ad revenue in two quarters and they show up with a solution. Because, and, and let me say this, it is very important that black and brown people show up with solutions. This day of, are you hiring? Man, them days over. And I tell people all the time, Companies are always hiring people who can solve who can solve a problem for them. That's huge. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just very powerful, Doctor Moore. Um, because, so, let me tell you why. Because when ahead. you finish high school with a one point six, and you go to an HBCU in Mississippi, you never get picked. You never get picked. <laughs> So, so what, what are some of the things that these students do during that experience of working in the Inclusive Innovation Program? Well, you know, Ruben Cantu runs that program. The first thing he does, he takes them through like a 15-week boot camp just, with him, just on self-assessment. Tell me how you grew up. You know what I'm saying? What was your family dynamic like? You know, is there some trauma in your background that you don't mind sharing? And, and what, he, what he's found is that he has to build them up because the system has never affirmed them. Man, we had a brother of mine. I recruited this guy to high school. This brother was born in the US. Mom moves to Mexico, he's in the 10th grade, all right? Right across the border. So, but he still wanted to go to the US high school. So this brother, man, had a two hour border, border crossing in the morning to go to, back to the US to go to high school. And sometimes after football practice, it would be a three hour border crossing going back the other way. Wow. So I remember dealing with the folks at UT when they said, Dr. Moore, he only has a 3.0. I said, damn, look what the brother's been doing. Who can do that? And so, and so for me, man, it's how do we take a brother like that who got the drive, the determination, the hustle, and got a lot of family support, you see what I'm saying? And what we get them to do is we basically tell them, 
all the stuff in your background that the mainstream media told you made you disadvantaged? Watch us flip that now. Because I tell them, you just had on ankle weights the first 10 years of your life. Now we're going to take them ankle weights off and the kids from these wealthy suburban areas can never compete with you because they don't know how to hustle. So what, what are some of the entrepreneurial activities that they do uh, in this program? Well, I think what, what Ruben does, first they, 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 they deal with the self-assessment piece. And after that, he matches them up with a local CEO of a small startup in Austin. And so they can work on a variety of projects. And sometimes they are directly assisting a staff member at that startup, or sometimes it's the, excuse me, their partner may tell them, okay, what it is, what it, what is it that you want to work on? And let's find out how, what your, how your interests can connect with what our business needs. And what we're finding, man, is that when you give these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids real, real world experience, and you help them work on, I like these management, because they're basically management consultants. They're going in there solving problems. It, it demystifies the corporate America job interview. It demystifies what, what full-time work is like because they have already been doing it. Yeah, I love that that program also, right. it, uh, it introduces students to a lot of the new uh, technological methods for uh, app development as a way of solving problems Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's experiential design or mm-hmm. design thinking, right. I think those are elements that uh, I've seen as part of that program. And those are really the capabilities and skill sets that you need coming out of the university, whether it's right. to, mm-hmm. you know, take a, a job inside of a company or to think about what you want to do on your own. Right. Now, you know, I've also heard you um, in speeches um, talk about, you know, skills, you know, developing your skills while you're in college. And I heard you mention uh, a few of those skills that you highly recommend students to uh, develop. Can you just speak a little bit about why you yeah. tell them that? And what are some of those skills that you think is critical to students uh, cultivating while they're uh, inside of a four-year time uh time right. slot um i tell them a couple of things number one you got to be able to operate an ambiguity you know you got to be able to operate where there is no map and ruben always tells his students if you get hired somewhere and you have to ask your boss what do i do next he says our program has failed you all right so that's number one and ambiguity number two you got to be adaptable you know we've seen with this COVID piece you could be working in the office one day being at home the next you you got to be adaptable and what I tell what I tell students is that you know the 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 um, and I like to use a phrase called last shot last shot employees. Let me tell you what that means. Every basketball coach will tell you if it comes down where we get the ball, about ten seconds left, and we down one or down two, I'm I'm there's some I got one person on this team who's getting that last shot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> and what I tell students that last shot employees aren't just narrowly relegated to a to a job description. The CEO or the VP may pull you on different projects because your skill set is adaptable across, across the organization. So number two. Uh, number three, you gotta be coachable. I tell people you gotta be coachable, no matter how brilliant you are. And, and here's what I tell them. Some of the greatest advice I ever got running my programs of mod came from high school students. And so my point was you can't be worried about where somebody is on an org chart 
and let that determine whether or not you listen to their advice. Because oftentimes it's the people below you on the org chart, sometimes who have a better, who have a better uh, gauge on organization. We talked about also the importance of having a global mindset. You can't just have this American frame of, uh, frame of reference. You gotta have a global mindset. And number five, we talked a lot about cultural intelligence. And here's what I tell people. I don't care what you think about LGBTQ folks. I don't care what you think about black people. You ain't gotta like black people. You ain't gotta like Black Lives Matter. You ain't gotta like, you ain't gotta like Trump supporters. But you gotta understand different perspectives. You ain't gotta agree with it. So even some of this QAnon stuff going on, it sounds crazy to me, Ahmad. But you know what? Enough people really believe that stuff. So my thing is that, okay, let me try to understand how they have come to this conclusion. It sounds bizarre to me, but in their mind, they came to a, a, a very logical <laughs> conclusion based upon some information that was presented to them. And so what we tell them is not necessarily about the resume. It's not about the grades. It's through these skill sets. And the, the biggest one, I say, you got to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to fail. And that is the biggest thing, the younger generation, like I said, they aren't used to failing, man. And I told my students, I tell them on the first day of class, every fall semester, my, all my first year students, the best thing that can happen to you all this semester is that you fell a class. <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting coming from a, uh, you know, from a, from an administrator, from a leader. Yeah. I mean, and that's so, that's so valuable because it, I mean, right. yeah, I mean, it, wow. That, that's and, I ask myself, and, and I say, okay, I said, what's the worst thing that happened if you fell a class? My grades, job. I said, no, the worst thing happened if you fell a class, you just get an F on your transcript. That's the only thing that happens. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, you know, your answer involved uh, a metaphor of sports, mm -hmm. you know, so right. sports is a, something that's, uh, that has also been a part of your career. You're, you are right. a fervent advocate for uh, student athletes um, mm -hmm. in the yeah. university and, and intercollegiate system. Um, how would you frame the current state of college athletics and what are the challenges uh, that right now we must kind of work through in order to get to the other side of something better. The one parallel I can give you is it seemed like that when, you know, when name image likeness legislation was passed about a month ago, it was, that was, it was Juneteenth for the black student athlete community. Uh, and so although you are in this new world where they can monetize their likeness, we will be dealing with the legacy of exploitation for years to come. Um, uh, what has been my, always been my frustration, uh, that I think they should get paid a, a long time ago. Yeah. But get them getting paid. Wasn't my really, wasn't the thing that really moved me. The thing that I got, I got frustrated with is that if these young people are making you millions of dollars, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, can't you at least educate them properly? I mean, shouldn't, sh shouldn't the student athletes have the best internships on campus? Shouldn't they have the most dynamic study abroad opportunities of anybody? But you just want to, in many ways, you know, they, they, they got the best workout facilities on campus. But, but my issue with athletic departments is that they never invested in the athlete. They never took time to invest in things that the athlete could leverage when their playing days were over. And so for me, man, it's been a 25, 24 year haul, you know, raising a lot of hell, cussing coaches out, cussing athletic directors out. 
And although a lot of people have never, some don't like my method, they don't like my message, I have never been called a liar. You've never been called a liar, and it's been effective. I mean, you yeah. know, there are athletic directors, um, not only at, at UT, but really around the country, that have a great deal of respect for you, that still invite you into some, uh, some heavy conversations, both at the intercollegiate and at the pro level. And mm-hmm. so wh- why do you think that you're able to get some stickiness there versus someone else who's trying to kind of placate or kind of undermine uh, the process because a bit more? They know that I know that their whole business model is based on black labor. It is. Woo-hoo. Yes. No business model is based on black labor. You say what you want. I see it. You see it. They don't want. They don't want to say it. But the whole model is. To be honest with you, the whole model is built on student students who they would not even admit to the university if they weren't playing ball. And so they understand that at the end of the day, they're bringing all these black kids to campus, and they know that they need to have better support structures for them. So that is sometimes where they'll call me and we'll have conversations. Got it. I mean, that's, that's powerful because, um, first, you know, to your point that you made earlier, you know, a lot of, uh, outsiders, people who are outside of college athletics don't know that when these college athletes get on campus, their coaches encourage them to isolate themselves from the general student body, right? You know, so they give them this feeling of, um, of being elite, of being mm-hmm. special, mm-hmm. but that special was in a very controlled container. Right. And by the time that these students who do graduate, and that's those who do, um, they haven't really taken advantage of all of the resources right. that are on a college campus and often becomes uh, very regretful of not mm-hmm. fully having, having that experience there. So I'm, I'm glad you actually brought that up there. So, you know, my, my last question for you, Dr. Moore, um, you know, this, this program is really about being able to uh, imagine different narratives and really different futures. If you can, because of all of the experience that you, you bring as a, as a leader, as one of the top uh, um, teachers, instructors, professors, as a community uh, connector, if you can, can you imagine and describe a new narrative for the future of higher ed? What would that look like? And how would it truly benefit uh, the student of the future? I think number one, we have to get out of this industrial model of education. The history department is here, <laughs> the math department is stupid. Everything is interdisciplinary, you, you know what I'm saying? So for me, it, it, you know, and I don't know what angle, I mean, it, as a, let me just talk from a, from a parent, parental perspective. I have a daughter, she'll be going to senior year, very, very creative. She does hair, she's a photographer. She go, she's a hustler. I would love to send her somewhere where maybe her first month or two, okay, you really like hair, you really like photography, what else do you like? You know what I'm saying? And then they spend time with her Okay, they say over these next four years, what do you want to learn? You know, what skill set do you want to leave with? And I think just more, increasingly more, man, curriculum needs to be a little bit more personalized. You know what I mean? I think every student who goes to a four-year institution should have some grand project that they work on. After the end of four years, 
they have a body of work around, you know, whatever it is, somebody want to study concussions. You see what I'm saying? So now they are hitting the job market as an expert in something. And so, and, and I'll say this too, man, the, the instruction has got to get better. You know what I'm saying? Just because you have a PhD, I don't think that means, I don't think that gives you the right to stand in front of, of college kids. I don't think so. I think that is an outdated model. And I think we're seeing some of this upheaval in business schools. We got all these theorists up there talking, but who's never done it? I mean, who better to take a marketing class from than somebody who's actually done it as opposed to someone who studied it? You know what I mean? So I think twofold, you know, creating space for students to personalize their curriculum and also doing a better job of, of recruiting faculty. Wow. <clears throat> That's fire, brother. I really appreciate your time on uh, Leadership Disrupted. I mean, you know, just my parting comments here is that higher ed right now have two options. They can right. be a driver of, uh, of innovation to be a hub of innovation mm -hmm. as kind of the tip of the spear in creating regional ecosystems that allow mm. for communities to solve real problems right. uh, by bringing all of those resources to bear and creating experiences for students to be part right. of that problem solving process. Or they can continue to really focus in on themselves as gatekeepers, Right. as a gateway to uh, to institutional uh, failure in mm -hmm. many ways, because that's really where they're headed if they're unable to figure out this challenge. Let me tell so you Dr. Moore, Let me sure. a quick story before we go. I want to close on this. So the University of Texas claims that they have, uh, that their graduate programs in the College of Education is top five, right? Or maybe top two or top three, all right? So put that there, all right? So I say, okay, so y'all are a top ranked school college of education. However, the school system in which the college of education building is sits in, is crumbling. So how you got all this expertise locked up over here, but the school system, you, you have no impact whatsoever. You know what I'm saying? No impact whatsoever. You're creating knowledge for knowledge's sake. Here's what kills me about all this academic journal writing. You can't even go buy it. You can't, you can't go to the store and be like, oh, I know Dr. Moore wrote the article. It's locked away in some bourgeois journal that is inaccessible to the public. So we are creating knowledge for knowledge's sake. That is a powerful point because you're, you're, you're absolutely right. If you go to any college campus and yeah. look at the College of Education, it's usually in, in shambles. And, Thank you. and one of the things that I don't understand is that, you know, you have more money that's being poured into educational innovation in the private sector. Mm, yes. And usually what universities are good at is bringing those type of innovations, innovations and investments into their colleges and schools in order to co-create together. And that's something that you don't see outside right. of your typical engineering department right. or computer science program. And it's, and let me uh, say it's this. a really mind boggling experience. And let me say this, community colleges have done a much better job at being innovative. So, I mean, community colleges have produced some dynamic leaders, man, because they are responding in many ways, you know, to the to the concerns of, 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 of local leaders in business and industry. That was my old job. 
as a yeah. dean, you know, responding to industry sector and demands there. Once again, Dr. Moore, I want to thank you for uh, coming on to Leadership Disrupted. This was a powerful conversation. It was thank fire. You, and, um, you know, I want to wish you the best. I know you have a lot of different endeavors yeah. uh, that are on the table right now. And I look forward to hearing more about those and bringing you back on here. So thank you very much. Appreciate it, brother. All right.